Welcome to the Why It Works podcast. I'm Joe Kwan, your host. Together, we'll pull back the curtain to reveal the hidden principles behind why things work. Things work for a reason. Let's find out why. Hi, this is Joe Kwan, the Connection Counselor, and I have some exciting news to share with you. If you listen to Why It Works, you probably know I love audiobooks. I listen to about one a week, which equals over 50 new books a year. After much cajoling and inspiration by my good friend, Luis Rosado, I just released my own audiobook, Unlock Your Charisma. I'll share the link in the show notes and on my website at www.connectioncounselor.com slash whyitworks. Have a listen so you can be seen, be valued, and be chosen. If you enjoy this show, I have a favor to ask right after the interview. Please take just a few moments to listen to my request. I promise it's easy peasy. Thanks. This episode is sponsored by my good friend, Shelly Brown. In addition to being a mindfulness consultant, she creates wonderful, joyful postcards. I'll let her explain. Also, go to the show notes on www.connectioncounselor.com slash why it works to see her video, which features some examples. Hello, all you charismatic people. My name is Shelly Brown, and I'm a friend of Joe's. When I'm not busy speaking to corporations about mindfulness, I am opening to the space of creativity with my hand-cut collage art. Recently during the quarantine, I've turned some of my collage art into postcards so that you can joy them forward. The store is called The Glue is Drying on Etsy. Stay well, be safe, and keep on cultivating your own amazing charisma. Here with us today is Susan Lindner, founder of Emerging Media, a branding, PR, and marketing agency for tech founders. Her background is in international business, and she has built multiple companies. She travels the world teaching entrepreneurs how to grow their influence and make the income and impact they desire. We speak to Susan from her home in the greater New York area. Welcome, Susan, to the Why It Works podcast, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Joe. So it's so good to see you again. We spoke uh, not too long ago. You and I were both on, I guess what I would call sort of a consultative call um, with the folks from KPMG Spark. Um, They have a call coming up as part of the Million Dollars Women Initiative, our um, joint partner in crime, Zoe Bogan, who's one of my KPMG colleagues, sort of brought us together to help out with that. Um, And it was really interesting to see um, your comments uh, and your advice on how our presenters can be more effective. And and some of that advice seemed like, you know, it was it was relatively new um, to them. And I thought it was very helpful. I I learned a few things. Um, So let me ask you, what do you think um, that otherwise intelligent, well-trained individuals can easily miss about the basics of effective communication? Yeah, I think most people think of communication as, what should I say? And um, at a basic level, they might be right. But what should I say is predicated on something that is unseen. And that is, what have I heard? Have I asked the right questions? 
Am I a good listener? Mm -hmm. Am I empathetic? And so shifting the emphasis from what you want to communicate versus the listener and making the listener the hero of whatever the story is that you're going to share is the critical first step that otherwise well-trained people forget. They get too fixated on what they want to say and they completely forget about the audience that they are saying it to. Ah, uh, I knew that was a reason I liked you, Susan. So <laughs> focus, it, it's, it's that focus on the listener, right? Yes. And really bringing them into the equation of the communication rather than what words should I use or what's my approach. You're totally disregarding the other party and that's not a good way to communicate. I remember that old Sunday school axiom, God gave you two ears and one mouth that you would listen twice as much as you speak. <laughs> well, if uh, everyone followed that axiom, I think the world would probably be a, a, a happier place, I imagine. Yeah, and noise pollution would be down by a good 50%. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an offender. You can ask my wife. I, I struggle with that all the time, but I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> but let's talk about that, just evolving that one step further. Yeah. Ultimately, even if we're really focused on what we want to communicate, ultimately, the person that we're communicating it to, we want them to do something. Okay. We want them to feel something. There's yeah. an action that takes place after our interaction, after our communication, that we hope will happen. We want someone to buy something, invest in something, create something, stop doing something, uh, engage with us to do more of something. In the event that we can actually inspire someone to overcome their own human inertia and do the thing that we want them to do, even if it's to give us a thumbs up, loved it, I approve. If we don't take into account what the listener is hearing, we will never be able to get them to do that thing that we want them to do. And so that is why, even from a selfish perspective, right? Even if we don't say, okay, I have empathy for the listener and I really want them to enjoy what I'm saying. And um, even if we start from that selfish place, we will never be able to do it unless we understand who we're speaking to and what motivates and drives them and what they need to feel incredible and to take the story forward. So I love that, that, that action and, and that end result. Allow me to add a wrinkle using myself as a bad example, right? Okay. Um, I think where it can go off the rails sometimes is when I or someone else loses sight of what you just said, right? Loses sight of that final thing. And sometimes you can lose sight of it because although that's also in my mind, there's an overriding concern maybe that's more powerful, which is I want to be right or I want to be heard or... I want some sort of validation or affirmation, which actually gets in the way of the greater objective, which is getting them to feel the thing or, or do the thing. And I think that happens a lot. It's, it's like a classic ego kind of thing where you're self-sabotaging yourself. That's true. You're absolutely right. That can happen. So thinking about, thinking about the story that we want to communicate and how it will connect, um, most times we connect around story and the way that we communicate around the vulnerability, not around the achievement. This was really hard for me. This was a real challenge for me. I developed this cool new product as I work with a lot of innovators. Mm. Let me tell you, like Edison, how it took me 10,000 tries and 10,000 failures. Mm. Let me connect with you around all the ways that this was a challenge so that we can empathize and you can relate to some time in your life when you had a challenge. 
And now my story goes down as you, as you uh, only shared with us, like a spoonful of sugar, you know, <laughs> making that connection for us um, that starts with humans connect at the vulnerable, not mm. necessarily at the celebration, at the success. Definitely, definitely. The vulnerability is so key. So that's a great segue into um, what I wanted to ask you next, which is uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us what you do, but break it down as if you were explaining it to a five-year-old. Great. So I'm going to put my crayons aside for a minute because I'm a words girl rather than a picture girl. (laughs) But I help uh, innovators better tell their stories. most people who are trying to bring new things into the world um, are trained in the sciences, are great, trained in technology, are trained in the very specific language of their field. And that makes it hard for them to communicate their awesome innovations to the world. And so if I can help them become better storytellers, they will get the resources and the runway and the recognition that they deserve. And that is my hope, is that no innovation will ever die on the vine because the innovator was unable to communicate its value to the rest of us. Mm, So you supplement or complement sort of their skill, which is the scientific or technical innovation. You you help them with the communication aspect, because let's be honest, um, you know, you know, engineers and, you know, uh, people who are sort of publicists, usually they're not the same person. They're usually very separate type skills. Yeah, we were on two different sides of campus at school, Mm -hmm. for sure. And it's unfortunate that, you know, that chocolate and peanut butter side of campus never came together. Yeah. Because um, those folks who were developing incredible ideas in biology and chemistry and engineering and computer science never had the ability to go and take classes in literature and public relations and communications and journalism to understand how to more effectively communicate their awesomeness to the rest of us on campus. And that stinks. They also got reinforced that communicating in technical language was the pure way of talking about science, that only by speaking in formulas and equations and outputs and lines of code could we effectively understand that thing. Well, unfortunately, that leaves a lot of people out of the discussion. And it makes it really hard without that training for innovators to tell the world about the awesomeness that they're working on. Mm, Great, great. So I am so happy you're here today to talk about innovation communication. And let me tell you why. Okay. So I love reading um, about history and different innovations of things uh, in the different types of business or self-help books that, that I frequent. Um, and it just astounds me. A lot of times there'll be some, you know, it seems obvious to us now, right, in hindsight. But, you know, at, at the time, it was like an amazing innovation that would have saved lives, would have, um, you know, generated a lot of income, you know, whatever the benefit was. And it can take not just years, it can take decades for the world to like get on board and just say, oh yeah, what that guy was saying that, or that gal was saying, the thing we made fun of them for, ignored them, maybe their career was even ruined for saying that thing, which went against sort of the prevailing you know, notions um, at the time. And then afterwards, hopefully they're still alive and healthy and, and collect some rewards for, for their innovation. But it always just blows my mind how that happens. And I don't imagine you know, I, I can figure out 
every single reason why that happens. It's probably, you know, very, very complex. But I imagine their ability to communicate, just as you were talking about before, probably plays an outsized role. So I'm wondering, how do you see the role of, you know, innovation communication in today's world, right? Where, you know, innovations, you know, it, you know the technology that enables, you know, ordinary people to innovate maybe where they couldn't five, 10 years ago. How do you see the role of communication in, in today's very fast paced world? Yeah, I think it's more important than ever. You know, um, we have the luxury now of watching innovation evolve for us in real time. I mean, you think about the light bulb being created, you know, 160 years ago, right? And then what was the next big innovation for us after that, you know, and after that and after that? Now, our, evolu- our innovation is happening so quickly that it's easier for us to kind of take the next step, take the next step across that river each time. But when you think about how the brain absorbs this information, it reacts as communicators by simile and metaphor, by using examples of the old in order for us to understand what is new. So we understood email because we know what mail is. You know, it's kind of funny that when you hit send, you still get a picture of an envelope. Yeah. And yet, I don't think my children know how to address an envelope. <laughs> it's true. I don't think they've ever purchased a stamp. You know, when we, um, when we hit save on our computers, there's a picture of a three and a half inch floppy disk. Yeah, yeah, I remember. And, um, and yet, no one owns one, uses one, and yet it's still the universal symbol for save. Yeah. So our brain goes back to what is old and familiar in order to make the leap into what is the future. Mm. So that is how our brain is hardwired. It's how we take that next um, like Billie Jean step in uh, the Michael Jackson video, right? Where the sidewalk lights up with each next step. That's how our brain functions. We don't have to get the whole picture. We just need that next step in order for us to make the first step into innovation. So what's interesting to me about what you're saying, Susan, is, you know, even as technology seems to be taking off like a rocket ship, you know, comparatively from, you know, maybe previous uh, centuries, our basic ways of understanding and and communicating are still very consistent with, with what they've always been, right? It's, it's, it's not changing as fast as the technology. We still have a, a, a baseline that we can refer to in what's effective communication. Yeah, I heard a hysterical comedian say, why are we still talking about how fast the space shuttle travels based on horsepower? Is there any chance that we will be replacing the rockets in the space shuttle with horses? No. Why are we still comparing how fast a Tesla goes to a horse? Right, right. That's great. This is how the human brain figures things out, right? We still make comparisons like, wow, that's better than sliced bread. Okay, I think we've had better innovations than sliced bread over over the course of our history, but this is how the brain works. So as communicators, recognizing that those uh, rhetorical techniques are really important for us to communicate when we do something new. And most startups will say, oh, we're the Airbnb of right? We're the Uber of, we're part of the economy of. So you might hear that now in business where people are talking about that. Oh, well, we're the Uber of office space, right? You can rent out a, a room in my office and yeah. it's just like getting a car on your phone. Right? Yeah. So that's you know, what 
human brain works. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's interesting because um, every once in a while I'll do something on on elevator speeches, right? And uh, and I'll actually say something similar to what you're saying. You know, no one really wants to hear your title because it doesn't mean anything to them, right? If you're like the chief assistant auditing, you know, muckety muck, blah, blah, like that, does, that doesn't mean anything to someone, right? But what is effective is when you use a metaphor that sort of describes the value that you bring. And it's funny when you're in like in a classroom setting and you try to get people to do that. Some people really struggle mightily with coming up for a metaphor for what they do. So what you say makes total sense, but I wouldn't say it's easy to do without like serious thought and like processing. I mean, I, that, that's why I've been my experience. I have a job, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, what, you, what people can do is think about what's the problem that I solve. Yeah. Or yeah. what's the passion that brings me to work every day? Or mm-hmm. um, if I didn't do my thing, mm-hmm. what would be the consequence of that? What am I preventing from going wrong? What am I enabling to go right? Mm-hmm. And so when you can start think about that one sentence that starts off with, I help, or I mm-hmm. shift, mm-hmm. I change, I empower, I move. Mm-hmm. When you can think about your job title as opposed to what is the outcome of what you do as opposed to the features of the product, right? How many buttons are on it or how many antennas are on it? The senior vice president, chairman, blah, blah, blah. Um, Okay, we got it. You earn big bucks. But what is the real thing that you enable people to do? How are you making people's lives better? That's a great place. Then you can find the metaphors of all the other things that make people's lives better in that way. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's see how our first um, video example uh, of someone trying to communicate innovation does uh, on a very popular show, Shark Tank. Next up is Darren Johnson, who hopes his innovative new product will send the sharks into a frenzy. My name is Darren Johnson. And I'm here today to explain the Ionic Ear investment opportunity. How much money are you looking for? I'm looking for a million dollars for a 15% ownership stake in the oh, technology. Yeah. What we have developed is a implantable Bluetooth technology. If you are one of the 40% of the users of Bluetooth technology that currently own it, you know that just the natural rhythm walking many times and perspiration, the technology will fall off your ear. If you answer the call too quickly many times, the Bluetooth device will become dislodged. I'm sorry, where are you implanting this into, a, into another device? What are you implanting this no, into? No, it's actually going into your ear. In your ear how? You're pushing it in? If I could direct your attention to the first slide, here is the surgery locations. This is just underneath the earlobe. The surgery location? This is this is surgery. You would be under anesthesia. <laughs> God. <laughs> you guys are so close-minded. Please let him finish. Okay. Thank okay. you. Thank you. At the base of the device is a battery. Within its center are Bluetooth electronics, and at its tip, a microphone, a speaker, and an AC charging port. Start right there. Back to surgery 101. Darren, we're gonna we're gonna operate on people. Yes, we are. We're gonna stick something in near their brain. No, we may not puncture their ear. You know what? I I can sum up where I stand on this already. It's pretty disturbing. 
and it freaks me out, I'm already out. How do I charge it every night? So we have the, the AC charging port. Can you stick that needle in your head every night to charge it? Yes, you would. Okay, you don't think... Are you... Seriously? Like, there, uh, seriously, it's a, a needle? It's like a small Q-tip cylinder that would dock... <laughs> what happens if you miss, Darren? So that you can't miss. You can't miss? Sure, really? there's going to be safety features built into it. Darren, I need to be clear on this before I write you off as a nut job, which I'm trying not to do. Because, okay, I right? appreciate that. But I have to understand... So, Susan, what do you see going on here? A man who is ahead of his time, Joe, obviously. Certainly. He came from the future. That's right. He came from the future. Like, I can barely, like, how many times do you have to put your USB in three different ways just to to get it in, right, (laughs) to whatever device you're doing? Imagine doing that in the side of your, oh, almost got it, almost got it. Right. But not to laugh at any innovator, right? I mean, we are seriously talking about wearables, implantables, and all different kind of performance-enhancing electronics today. Um, that would have been thought of as fairly odd, probably at the time of this, um, of this broadcast. So what's, what's the big question, Joe? What are, we, what are we looking to ascertain from this, from this lovely shark et? <laughs> so... My question to you would be um, taking the, uh, I guess, quality or, 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 or the judgment of the uh, innovation, putting that to the side for a second, right? So, so let's not assume it's good or bad. Let's keep an open mind like that one judge was saying. I felt, and I'd like to hear from you, what this guy, this guy didn't do a very good job, period, right? Even if he had the best innovation, I didn't feel like he would have done a good job. So what could he have changed? Maybe he still wouldn't have got the money, but to give himself a better chance to communicate more effectively his innovation, um, putting to the side that the fact that we all probably think that this is crazy, if not before it's time. Yes. So um, yeah, here's an innovator who's been working on his own for way too long and could probably use the help of a of a larger uh, investigative group or research group that could help him with this process. But that aside, so step one, whenever you're intro- introducing an innovation of any kind, right, is to acknowledge the history of where it comes from, just like we talked about with email, and we dis- declare it to be the next iteration of that thing. So we're setting up those stepping stones in order to prove that this is the next thing, right? So smart companies have made investments in the following five innovations. This is where we are today. This is what the future looks like, right? So we'll start there. The other is to make the business case. We say that a shift has taken place and it explains why those last five steps are not sufficient to get us to the place where we want to be in the future. So without this new leap to my innovation, we'll never get to the promised land, whatever that promised land is, right? So for this gentleman to say, the promised land is the ability to be anywhere, talk anywhere, underwater, above ground, underground, you name it. The ability to function on our cellular devices actually requires an implant. Mm. And we are ready. The shift Mm. is here. We are in the everywhere economy. There is not a time, a place in the world where we can afford to be disconnected from our cell phones. The shift is now. 
Mm, I could definitely see how that would maybe not make your concerns away, but it would at least get you more excited about what's going on. And you can kind of see, well, maybe there is something to this. Maybe we, we have to fix these problems, overcome them. And because this is really great, like the seed of the idea is really outstanding. Right. So can we talk about where um, we've had these experiences of these four investments, but they've let us down when we get to this critical juncture. Mm-hmm. And now is the time for my innovation because it overcomes that, that hump. Mm. And the shift is here now and we know the market wants it, craves it, and is demanding it because we see the following. Mm-hmm. We see the following shifts. We see people on airfare. We see, you know, like on airplanes who need access to their phones. We need people underground. We see people underwater. We see people in submarines. The military needs this. Doctors need this. They need to get information from the CDC and the World Health Organization while they're operating in real time. You decide whatever the urgency is of why we must have it now. Mm. And then the other is why is it palatable? How can we make this giant leap? It feels so otherworldly. Well, by the way, we've already had other implantables. We have heart valves from pigs. We have liver transplants. We have pacemakers, which are third party metal devices that help our hearts to beat every day. Why would we not want to be connected with our loved ones, with our important people? Why would we not want to be in contact with the people who need us every day? Finally, we have the opportunity to do that. I think you're ready to go on Shark Tank, Susan. <laughs> I mean, but with all seriousness, though, a, a couple things that I see in, in, in when you're talking and sharing is one, you, you're connecting it to like this strong emotion, right? Like, like, like why we really want it and need it. And, and I'm getting excited to think like, yeah, we can definitely do this. This is powerful. And then the other thing is, you know, you touched on this in our uh, sort of opening remarks, that that metaphor or showing the history, right? So when you said that we're already putting things in our body, boom, immediately a giant roadblock went down, right? And then I thought, of course, we have pacemakers, we have titanium joints or hips. This is not crazy, right? But when he came in and he didn't do any of that, I was like, come on, guy, this is, this is just too much. Right, right. And so setting up those examples, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like when your kid says, I want to stay out past curfew. Well, you already let me stay out this time. And remember when we had that family gathering? And don't you remember when I came home even early because you could trust me? And, right? Mm -hmm. These are the same negotiations we've been making with mom and dad for a really long time. (laughs) When we do this in business, we're setting the stage, right, for making every new innovation palatable. And then the other thing we ask, we incorporate that empathy for the listener. Isn't it important to you that you're never disconnected from your family? Mm. And then the thing that happens next is now I need testimonials. I need other people to validate what I say. Why should you believe me? I'm just a startup and innovator with some cool new idea. Why should anyone believe me? Why should anyone bank their reputation and for the sharks, their wallet? Here's what the head of the Department of the Defense has to say. Here's what the head of the Albert Schweitzer Institute, here's what the head of the CERN Super Collider has to say, right? Here's what the head of AT&T and Verizon have to say is going to be the future of cellular communication. So we, can we get other invested third parties or even other objective third parties mm-hmm. to weigh in and say why it matters? Well, what I love about what you're sharing here is um, 
it's not just specific to innovation. Like what you're sharing is great advice for business, period. Right. Sure. When, when you're sharing like, oh, why should you hire me to be your innovation coach? Like all those things would make a much more powerful, compelling case if you had testimonials and other people saying, look what Susan did for me. This is amazing. I mean, that's just basic business. This isn't something tricky that, that, that you're communicating that no one thought of. This is like fundamental principles of like running a business and communication. Right. It's just that much harder when you're presenting a product that no one's seen before. Mm. I, I think also we... Skepticism is so high. Yeah. And I think also maybe sometimes we get a little bit seduced or confused by the, the, the sexiness of the technology, right? So we, we forget that like at, at the end of the day, you still have to be effective from a business perspective. It's not enough that you've invented something like Leonardo, you know, Da Vinci's yeah. level. No one cares until they until they have it and it's working. Until then, it's just another wacky business proposition. That's right. <laughs> That's right. All right. So let's take a look at our next clip. Um, one of my favorite shows with some wacky characters, and see what we can learn from them. Can I help you? Name, please. Uh, Seinfeld, uh, you made a reservation for a midsize, and she's a small. <laughs> I'm kidding around, of course. Um, okay, let's see here. 66 years old? Yeah, well, he's in perfect health. He works out. He's vibrant. You'd really like him. Why do people always say that? I hate everybody. Why would I like him? So what do you think? Could you go out with a 66-year-old woman? Well, I'll tell you, she would have to be really vibrant. So vibrant, she'd be spinning. Oh, I'm sorry, we have no midsize available at the moment. I don't understand, I made a reservation. Do you have my reservation? Oh, yes, we do. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. But the reservation keeps the car here. That's why you have the reservations. I know why we have reservations. I don't think you do. If you did, I'd have a car. <laughs> See, you know how to take the reservation, you just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of the reservation, the holding. Anybody can just take them. Let me uh, speak with my supervisor. Uh, here we go. The supervisor. You know what she's saying over there? What? Hey, Marge, see those two people over there? They think I'm talking to you. So you pretend like you're talking to me. Okay, now you start talking. Oh, you mean like this, so it looks like I'm saying something, but I'm not really saying anything at all? Okay, now you say something else, and they won't yell at me because they thought I was checking with you. Oh, great, I think, okay. I think that's enough. See you okay, later. Good. I'm sorry, my supervisor says there's nothing we can do. Yeah, it looked like you were in a real conversation over there. But we do have a compact, if you would like that. Fine. All right. Well, we have a blue Ford Escort for you, Mr. Seinfeld. Would you like insurance? Yeah, you better give me the insurance because I am going to beat the hell out of this. <laughs> so what did you, uh, what were some of your observations? What did you see going on here, Susan, with regards to uh, communication and innovation? So much storytelling, right? I mean, <laughs> let's tell a story. Let's go behind closed doors, pretend to tell a story. Let's figure out how we actually fake a story. <laughs> and then let's come back with a conclusion that was already predetermined from the beginning of the story. <laughs> I, I, I feel that sometimes, um, I, I swear sometimes if I, when I've gone into a car dealership, 
that the guy just walks away and is getting a coffee. He's like, Oh, I'm going to talk to my boss. And, and it's just, a, it's just a tactic. You know, it's like, there's yeah. no actual conversation going on there. He's just stalling me or, you know, sort of making me, making me wait it out, you know? Maybe that's my next book. Yes. Fake storytelling. <laughs> Fake storytelling. There you go. Convince <laughs> your customers you're really having that conversation when you're not. <laughs> so what's 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 the problem here? What 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 is the challenge? Um, how does this sort of hurt your business? Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think Jerry summed it up pretty well when he said, "You know how to take the reservation. You don't know how to hold the reservation, which is the crux of the reservation process." So. Are you really, you know, and frankly, are you really arming your frontline workers to be able to satisfy the customers, period? And, you know, oftentimes when we work on branding exercises with clients, we ask them the question, what is the one promise that you will never break to a customer? Mm. No matter what happens, we will never break this promise. And, you know, and I don't care if you're Morgan Stanley or the Wolf of Wall Street, each one of those companies knows the promise that they're making to their customer, right? We're going to overinflate a really big deal and hopefully give you a return that will probably evaporate momentarily. And by the way, there will be hookers and cocaine involved in that solution. <laughs> Morgan Stanley has an entirely different approach, which is, you know, reliability and information right, and, right, right. and so forth. So, but you have to get really clear about your core values and you have to get really clear about the promise that you're making. I mean, I think Avis is really clear. They'll try harder, mm-hmm. you know, and Hertz will tell you they're the gold standard. Now this particular, <laughs> this particular uh, rental agency, I think their, um, I think their promise to customers might be, mm-hmm, anything's possible. <laughs> yeah. What I find fascinating, fascinating about what you're saying here, Susan, is if your people don't really understand like what that value is. And I don't mean value like the four to seven values that they announce at a, at a, at a huge company meeting. I mean like what you said, like the actual thing that you can't break. Like if your people don't understand that, then they're not going to live it and they're not going to feel that they have the, you know, quote unquote authority to, to maybe go outside the lines to, to do that. And then, from a communication perspective, your customers aren't going to believe it. You can send out as many slick marketing materials or campaigns as you want, but everyone's going to be like, come on, that's not really what this company's about. Sure. And I mean, that travels right back up, right? What was the supervisor's role in ensuring that the customer had what they reserved? Mm-hmm. So that frontline worker got a notice from their manager that, no, th- never mind, a reservation means nothing. Right. Mm. They got the message that customer service meant nothing. And in fact, let's have this pretty little song and dance behind closed doors about what's not going to happen, actually giving the customer what they want. And where did that supervisor get that memo that that was okay to do? And the fact that there are no consequences for either the supervisor or the frontline worker for not fulfilling on the promise of holding a reservation is indicative about the promise that the company is making to the customer, which is zero. What I love about your observation is, and I recently um, started listening to a book called The Culture Code about, you know, how culture is created in sort of elite teams and companies. Um, And one of the things they said in the early chapters was, we often get it wrong because we're looking at the things we can see 
But really, the thing that we should be looking at are the things that we can't see that are going on underneath, like how you mentioned, what's like that value, that unwritten rule. That rule is not written anywhere, right? It's, it's probably not in any manual, but it's, it's maybe communicated through the ethos of the company, the words they use, the stories they tell. It's, it, it's hidden, but it's, but it's there. And that's what creates the culture and the communication, not a manual, not a script. That does not ring true to the average customer. That's right. You have to live it every day. And there are consequences and incentives. That's how you know if it's, if it's true. There are consequences and incentives around that promise. So I know if I do this, I will be rewarded. I know if I don't, I might not be here. Mm, interesting. I mean, one sort of modern day example of that, I think that a lot of people in corporate America experience is, you know, when social media really started to take off and companies were understanding that you could really harness social media for more business. Mm. Um, a lot of companies started saying to their employees, you know, you are a representative, you need to be on social media, get out there, you know, we got to do this together. But you know where this is going, right? And, and then when someone does go out on social media, you know, and either they get too big, or maybe they make a tiny misstep or something, they immediately get like stamped down. Right. And then, or fired. And then everyone else is like totally fearful and is not going to do anything effective. Meanwhile, the whole time the company is wondering, well, why aren't our people more active on social media? What, why aren't they trying harder? I don't know why. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. How, why could it be Joe? Why? <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah. but that's, that's your, that's your point. That's your, what is the value, right? Like, cause, cause now they're just saying something, but they don't really believe it. Maybe, maybe the people who are saying it don't really understand what that means and the additional risk that you're going to have to take on. You're going to have to survive some mistakes until you calibrate and get it right. And then you're being effective. So. True. So, and one other thing to that point is that brand promise, right? The yeah. way that effective, effective leaders can showcase those qualities is by showing that clip and saying, here's what we don't do. It can also be uh, in every meeting calling out examples where that brand promise is being lived. So yeah. if, um, you know, if my example is to treat every customer like family, I can't tell you how many businesses I hear that when you come here, you're like family. Right. Okay, great. So what does that look like? Does that mean that um, every per, every diner who comes into that restaurant gets the very best seat in the house? Impossible. Mm -hmm. What's the very best seat in the house? When we Can we get really granular about what it means to be treated like family? Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people have very different family backgrounds. <laughs> Being treated mm -hmm. like family isn't always your best. <laughs> right, right, right. I might have been treated better by a stranger than I would by my own family. So <laughs> hopefully not. But it's really incumbent upon a leader to clarify that and to constantly surface examples of where those values are happening and rewarding them so that they become part of the air that you breathe inside. Yeah. Of and I go, I want to call out Julie for treating someone like family, you know, this woman had a flat tire in the parking lot. She called AAA and got their tire fixed for them in the middle of her shift and her coworkers all covered for her because that's what mm. family does for each other. You know, when someone came to our restaurant and had a birthday, we didn't charge them extra for the candles on the cake. 
because you wouldn't treat a family member like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we all got together and we sang happy birthday together because that's what family looks like. Or, you know, we decided to take that family member's meal off the bill because that's mm-hmm. how we treat family. So what are the different ways that we can constantly call out that value and allow, most importantly, unique expressions of that value by each coworker so that they make it their own. They see themselves in it, they transform the story into their own and they can tell it so that someone else can see it. It's not the same thing every time. Like this is the only way we treat people like family. We allow people to interpret it and make it their own. That's when it becomes real. I am so glad you said that about allowing people to express it in in their own way. And that is just so powerful, right? When you communicate the principle it's so much more powerful and it empowers people to do the right thing versus you give them, okay, these are the three ways you can treat people like family. You know, like, like that is not exciting. I don't get excited to follow your checklist of three ways. I get excited to hear that, okay, I'm supposed to treat people like family. And then, you know, through feedback from you as my manager and watching examples of other people, I get creative. And now I feel empowered and excited to say, Hey, what am I going to do to really knock it out of the park today and really treat these people like family. That's exciting, I think. Yeah, and I I think Starbucks does that really well. You know, their ethos is surprise and delight. Mm. So like, how do we surprise and delight? Is it like, you know, putting a smiley face on your cup or, um, you know, giving you extra fudge because I know that you like, you know, extra chocolate in your mocha when you come in every single morning. Like, I don't have to ask anymore. Or maybe it's putting a funny little umbrella or something like that in your, in your drink. You know, those are the things that surprise and delight me, you know, mm. knocking a 50 cents off or an extra shot of hazelnut um, just because it's a nutty morning. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. Excellent. Love it. Let's take a look at our next clip, uh, which is someone being um, maybe unconventional or, or innovative in the area of uh, medicine or caring for others. Mm. You've been accused of practicing medicine without a license. It's a very grave charge, son. Are you aware that it's unlawful to practice medicine without a medical license? Yes, sir, I am. Are you aware that running a medical clinic without the proper licensing can place both you and the public in a great deal of danger? Is a home a clinic, sir? If you are admitting patients and treating them, physical location is irrelevant. Yes, sir. Will you define treatment for me? Yes, treatment would be defined as the care of a patient seeking medical attention. Have you been treating patients, Mr. Adams? Well, sir, I live with several people. They come and go as they please. I offer them whatever help I can. Mr. Adams, have you or have you not been treating patients at your ranch? Everyone who comes to the ranch is a patient, yes. And every person who comes to the ranch is also a doctor. I'm sorry. Every person who comes to the ranch is in need of some form of physical or mental health. They're patients. But also every person who comes to the ranch is in charge of taking care of someone else. Whether it's cooking for them, cleaning them, or even a simple task as listening. That makes them doctors. I use that term broadly, gentlemen, but is not a doctor someone who helps someone else? 
When did the term doctor get treated with such reverence as, oh, right this way, Dr. Smith, or excuse me, Dr. Scholes, what wonderful foot pads, or pardon me, Dr. Patterson, but your flatulence has no odor. <laughs> At what point in history did a doctor become more than a trusted and learned friend who visited and treated the ill? Now you ask me if I've been practicing medicine. Well, if this means opening your door to those in need, those in pain, caring for them, listening to them, applying a cold cloth until a fever breaks, if this is practicing medicine, if this is treating a patient, then I am guilty as charged, sir. Did you consider the ramifications of your actions? What if one of your patients had died? What's wrong with death, sir? What are we so mortally afraid of? Why can't we treat death with a certain amount of humanity and dignity and decency and, God forbid, maybe even humor? Death is not the enemy, gentlemen. If we're going to fight a disease, let's fight one of the most terrible diseases of all, indifference. Now, I've sat in your schools and heard people lecture on transference and professional distance. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact on another. Why don't we want that in a patient-doctor relationship? That's why I've listened to your teachings, and I believe they're wrong. A doctor's mission should be not just to prevent death, but also to improve the quality of life. That's why you treat a disease. You win, you lose. You treat a person, I guarantee you, you win, no matter what. Wow. Robin Williams. Man. <laughs> so what was... I know, I know. Seriously. Totally miss him. Um, so what was sort of your reaction to what was going on there, the situation and, and kind of his outlook, which was very different than perhaps the current medical establishment? Yeah, and you know, it's kind of funny from an innovation storytelling perspective, right? Our goal is to always push forward. Um, and I feel like Robin Williams' approach to medicine is almost a step back or a lateral step to say, isn't a doctor who is someone who is a friend, who's compassionate, who cares for you, who listens to you, who holds your hand and makes you feel better. Um, when you think about the ways that we approach medicine is so codified, so specialized, so institutionalized, so separated and academic from the humans who are treated it reminds me so often of how disconnected in large companies that we can be from the customers that we purport to help. Mm. We get so focused on whether or not we have the highest certifications and the process and whatever else associated with it that we lose connection to the people we're trying to help the most. And so yeah. whatever field you are in, I think this clip is a reminder of how are we really ameliorating the human condition regardless of the professional outcome that we're working in. And the last thing I want to say about that is transformation. So the expectation when we do business with a company, especially an innovative company, is that transformation will occur because we're taking a risk in terms of working with someone new. You know, whether we're switching vendors or we're working with a cool new company or a hot new startup that purports to be able to solve our problem. We take a risk when we decide to sign that contract and say, yes, I'm willing to work with some untested entity or some untested process. And that's because the expectation is that my life will be different if I decide to take this risk. That if we solve this problem 
maybe I'll get a raise. Maybe I'll get a promotion. Maybe my boss and my coworkers will look at me differently if I can figure this out and I can do that in conjunction with someone else, with this doctor, right, who's diagnosing my problem with technology or a process or a service and help me solve it. But the other side of that transformation I'm anticipating is a personal one. Do I get to leave the office any earlier? Do I get to spend more time with my kids? Do I get to have peace of mind that my new security solution isn't going to go off in the middle of the night and I'm going to be on a call from 1 to 3 a.m.? Do I have a sense that there'll be more peace of mind? Will it give me the freedom to go and explore new markets or to innovate some new cool thing on my own? So we have an expectation of transformation. And Robin Williams' way of doing it is saying, let's return to empathy and humanity. But I think for anything that we do in business, the expectation is a shift, is a, sh is a change that is going to make my life better. And that's what we're looking for. Mm. You know, when you were talking about the transformation, it really resonated with me. And, and one thing that I see happening a lot is, and, and not that, I don't want to give the impression that's one good and one, and one is bad. I, I think you kind of both are, are, are helpful, but I feel like we've gotten to a point in time in, in, in business where everything is about metrics and statistics and showing this and that. And, and that is like the king. And we've totally denigrated or forgotten about the transformational parts, the way it can improve your sort of those intangible benefits. And it's almost like if you can't describe it with like a, a statistic or something you can put in a, in, a, in a data point, then if we can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And to what you were saying, like, hey, if something's good, if I'm going to buy your product or receive your coaching, and now I get to be home for dinner every night with my young child and my spouse or partner, can you measure that? No. You can't measure that, but I would say that's really freaking powerful <laughs> in terms of my motivation to, to take a leap and say, hey, this app is really expensive or your coaching is really expensive. I, I don't, but, and then you see, oh, wait, this is going to transform my life like that? Even though you can't measure it, to me, that drives more than, look, you will now be spending uh, 7.5 hours less during your work week, then I mean, and, and that's helpful for some people, like some people need to see that. But I just feel like we've gone so far one way that we totally ignore the other aspect. I'm curious to sort of get your insights on that. Yeah, I think almost every product that um, companies have come to me with in the last year, that wanted to launch with data driven X. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so everything is about the data and everything is about the, uh, well, if we can get from data, maybe we can actually get to insights, right? Then, then the focus is on insights, but I'm still waiting for that wisdom driven mm. software or that wisdom driven product where we actually take the data, take the insights, and then we make our life better as a result of it. Ultimately, all innovation should be in service to making one's life better. Otherwise, why are we here as humans on the planet, right? Yeah. So even if it's Elon Musk making the planet better, right, for not using carbon, um, not burning fossil fuels, or, and maybe we get to drive faster so that our adrenaline climbs, and so that's making our life better, or so we never have to go to the awful gas station again and run out of gas or fill up with gas or even check the gas prices, how much space would that leave in my brain to not yeah. have to think about that ever again? 
So yeah, it's like, how is innovation constantly in service to humanity? So I would say, you know, to the innovators out there, think about how you're making someone's life better. Yeah. And, and maybe it's helpful to give an example, like for anybody who's ever taken an Uber or a Lyft or some ride hailing app, uh-huh. Uber and Lyft never promised to get us from point A to point B any faster. Right. What they promised us is that they would eliminate all the things that we hated about taking a cab, not knowing when it was going to come, how much it was going to cost, negotiating, having cash on hand, the smell in the back seat, yeah. uh, not know the safety of a driver. They didn't get us from point A to point B faster. They eliminated all the stuff that we just abhorred about taking a cab. Yeah, yeah. And, and even the e- even the price point being the same, like even before, eventually, you you will you will be okay with that because of all those other things you mentioned. I mean, how many of us have waited for an Uber while we've watched four yellow taxis drive past us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right, great. Well, let's take a look at our. Uh, last video, uh, which is quite an adventure. Mm. And so Richard Parker went ahead of me. He stretched his legs and walked along the shore. At the edge of the jungle, he stopped. I was certain he was going to look back at me, flatten his ears to his head, growl that he would bring our relationship to an end in some way. But he just stared ahead into the jungle. And then Richard Parker, my fierce companion, the terrible one who kept me alive, disappeared forever from my life. After a few hours, a member of my own species found me. He left and returned with a group who carried me away. I wept like a child, not because I was overwhelmed at having survived, although I was. I was weeping because Richard Parker left me so unceremoniously. He broke my heart. You know, my father was right. Richard Parker never saw me as his friend. After all we had been through, he didn't even look back. But I have to believe there was more in his eyes than my own reflection staring back at me. I know it. I felt it. Even if I can't prove it. You know, I've left so much behind, my family, the zoo, India, Anandi. I suppose in the end, the whole of life becomes an act of letting go. But what always hurts the most is not taking a moment to say goodbye. I was never able to thank my father for all I learned from him, to tell him without his lessons, I would never have survived. I know Richard Parker is a tiger, but I wish I had said, it's over, we survived. Thank you for saving my life. I love you, Richard Parker. You'll always be with me. I can't be with you. Oh, wow, that really gets me. What, 
what can we learn from uh, Life of Pi and uh, Richard Parker, that whole story? Oh, heartbreaking, right? And so sad to learn that Imran Khan passed away just a few days ago. Yeah. Um, so, and what an incredible actor. Um, it's hard um, saying goodbye to one's past, one's childhood, one's parents. Um, the incredible amount of loss that... Um, that he experiences in this story and to watch your past fade away from you and the inability to say thank you to the people that we care about. And um, it was particularly poignant because, you know, we're recording this podcast and having this wonderful conversation in the midst of a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, five of my close friends have lost a parent. Wow. And so you experience that and you go, wow, there's just a generation of people who never got to say goodbye, who never got to be there in those final moments, who never were able to say all the things that they wanted to say to a parent. And um, so the ability to just recognize and um, the former selves that we leave behind and the people around us who we need to communicate with and say the things that we need to say while we can still say it. And I, I think that was my takeaway from the film of watching it just again last night is having read the book and then watched the movie a bunch of times and it's still like, oh, it's, it's an epic story. And um, that that for me is the takeaway. Um, and then the other side is to, uh, you know, he refers to him as his fearsome companion. And I think there are sides of our own personalities of has he lost his fierceness you know, was that a side of his personality, that survivability, that um, ability to stand up to tough situations and overcome them? Um, are those parts, facets of our personality that we can hold on to? Mm. What's interesting to me is how um, there can be so many different dimensions in a single person, Right. Like, you know, you ask a person, you know, well, what are you like? And it's almost like the question presupposes you're just like one consistent way all the time throughout your whole life. And, and I can pen it down to this moment. You know, it's going to be the same for the next five years. It's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a fallacy, right? There's certain things that remain fairly consistent, but there's lots of other things that are changing all the time. Yeah, context is everything. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh boy. So um, in the context of uh, sort of communication and, and communicating with people, what do you think it is that are some of the barriers to perhaps communicating with those family members um, that kind of echo barriers we may have communicating in a, in, in a business context? Like why do we as human beings where, you know, we've, we've evolved to be amazing communicators, why do we still struggle with, with certain basics of communication? Yeah, I think part of it is trauma. You know, it's kind of like the way that we were raised, we were applauded, just like this incentive and punishment, right? Mm -hmm. we, we received incentives and punishments for the way that we communicated. Right? So if being honest and open was a value that was appreciated in your house, then you could say, I'm having a bad day, and I'm just going to sit down and cry. Mm -hmm as a young man, if that was acceptable in your house, great. And if it was not, then it may be way more difficult to be vulnerable at work, knowing mm. that those incentives and those punishments were in place 
back from day one. Yeah. You know? And so thinking about the openness and the way that people communicated. So could you speak the same way to your grandmother and your parents than you could to your siblings? Or were there different structures to, you know, communicating with elder people versus same age people? Um, Did we have different feelings about our in-laws versus our, you know, our direct, our direct ancestors, let's say Uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys, are there feuds that would never go away? Are there secrets that could never be spoken? Well, you know, one, one, one thing is you're um, sharing those insights, Susan, um, I think back about your earlier comments about, you know, vulnerability. Um, and one thing that I've been sort of encountering is people tend to struggle when they hear words like vulnerability and authenticity, right? A lot of times they don't like to hear that, right? Because what happens is they try it and then they get punished, right? It's, it's kind of like the same thing with like the social media thing, right? So like everyone's saying, oh, be more, you know, I, don't get me wrong. I love Brene Brown. You know, I love her work. Amazing stuff. But then some people try to implement it and maybe they don't understand it fully. And then and they try to do it and then they get slapped down, right? And then so then there becomes this sort of backlash against something which I think is amazing. We need more vulnerability and, and authenticity in, in life and, and even in businesses. Um, but there is that kind of like, if you don't do it sort of in the right way or at the right time, I don't know exactly what that is, it can actually backfire on you in a, in a very negative way, which makes you less likely to do it. Again, yeah. have you have you seen that with your clients in, in business? Well, if you're consistently crying at the Monday morning stand-up meeting, showing your vulnerability, then chances are you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, I think part of it is an acceptance within the culture uh-huh. of whether or not um, vulnerability is accepted. And there are places where it, frankly, is not. No. I find it really... Um, encouraging that the Air Force is one of Brene Brown's biggest customers mm. for her consulting work and that they recognize that that you know command and control structure that has existed in the military since time immemorial is not working anymore. It is having an incredibly detrimental effect on recruiting. Uh, PTSD is at an all-time high. Soldier suicide rates are incredibly high. And as a result, we know that this structure of be strong, be unbreakable, be inflexible, Mm -hmm. uh, be intolerant of weakness actually causes people to crumble. It causes people to crack. Yeah. Especially in high pressure situations as leaders, it's imperative that we remember that if we don't allow the steam to blow off, if we don't allow people to bend, they will break. And so that leader, that example of vulnerability and sharing vulnerability, I think through story, because when you wrap it in, this is my experience, it may not be yours, but here's what happened to me, that people can take away from that opportunity and go, ah, this is a space where I feel comfortable telling my story. And we can place the parameters on what those stories look like in order to make people feel comfortable and kind of wade into the shallow end of the pool. But if Oprah Winfrey taught us nothing else about being 25 years on a stage every day and allowing people to share their stories, that thing is that when we tell a story, we create an openness that allows someone else to tell us theirs. Mm. And that is the magic that 
irresistible, inescapable power of story is that it opens a two-way dialogue. Even though you may be telling a story, you are inadvertently creating a two-way dialogue, even if that person turns to the person to their right and now tells them a story, not you. Mm, using, you know, you and I are both big fans of metaphors. Using your kind of metaphor thinking it, uh, I, when you were saying that, about the story, it, it creates like a portal almost that, that, that opens. It opens that portal. In it's us. Very, yeah, yeah, it's yes. very powerful. And hopefully the organization too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one thing that, um, that I am very uh, excited about is companies do seem to be recognizing the power of this. And I don't think it's, you know, I think a lot of the times it isn't just um, they're doing it because it's the right thing to say or the trendy thing. I, I think a lot of the leaders in the Air Force is like a great example. Like they, they're starting to come around and see like, wait, this is not the way we're doing it before. We're not going to be around, you know, in another 50 years. And I think that's just great that leaders are starting to figure that out and, and, and do things about it. So wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, and some, you know, I mean, Steve Jobs told us that the storyteller is is the most powerful person in the room because he conveys mm. the mission and the vision and the future of the business. And there's no accident that Jeff Bezos has done away with PowerPoints and meetings and wants stories instead because they're simply not effective. So if we're looking for the data and the ROI, we can look to those individuals who say, wow, we get so much more productivity when we ask an employee to introduce a product by try to write out a press release of how you'd explain it to me versus here's a PowerPoint that explains every feature of a product. Mm -hmm. We know that it's working because people are making space for it at the highest echelons of business. And why I work with companies like GE or Corning who say, teach our leaders how to tell stories so that we can hold on to the best and the brightest. We want to hear from them, not just a one-way dialogue. We need that back and forth. Yeah, very, very, very powerful stuff, Susan. Love it. So... It's been a real treat to talk to you and hear your expertise on innovation communication. I could go on talking with you for much longer. Um, what things are you working on and how can our audience get in touch with you or learn more? Great. So um, I'm writing a book, which will be out in August of this year called Innovation Storytelling, Get the Resources, Runway, and Recognition You Deserve. So if you're interested in a pre-order, you can head over to susanlinder.com. And there's lots of information there about my keynotes and workshops, one-on-one -on -one coaching and consulting. And Joe, for your audience, I would love to offer a free 30-minute consultation on how to help your listeners develop their own innovation story. And they can just go to schedulesusan.com and pick any half an hour that works for them, I'm here to help. Awesome, awesome. And, and, you know, just to remind folks, the reason Susan and I met and the reason I asked her to come on this podcast is we were kind of doing a, a, a joint consulting with um, some folks at my company and I just, I just learned so much and we had such a great time together. I thought it'd be great to do this uh, together. One last question is, is this, your, is this your first book? This is my first book. Yeah. Yeah, you must be excited. How 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 is how has the process been? How's it going? Give us a give us a little preview. 
Excruciating is the answer. <laughs> good. Then I know it's going to be good when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, so now on to the lovely process of editing and then uh, all set for August. So I'm excited to, to see the cover and pick out all the, the fun stuff is picking out the cover, but I'm excited to incorporate all the techniques I've learned over the last 20 years of working with innovative companies and um, using those techniques to help them get recognized and get the get the resources that they deserve so that no innovation goes unseen. Beautiful. We're going to have to talk offline about the whole book thing because, as you know, I'm, I'm working on my second book as well. So uh, thank you, Susan, Thanks for so sharing much. your insights on why it works. Thanks so much, Joe. <laughs> Do you ever feel like your career has hit a roadblock? Many people spend a large part of their career stuck in a rut. The sad thing is they don't know why and no one really tells them. In many cases, the ceiling of your career is defined not by how good you are at your job, but rather by how others perceive your leadership. In other words, executive presence. In my second book, Unlock Your Executive Presence, I reveal the six states of being that actually generate executive presence and a blueprint for immediately improving how people respond to you. If you read Unlock Your Executive Presence, I have a big favor to ask. Please join us on Team 100. Our mission is to get 100 Amazon reviews in 100 days. To help, if you don't want to pay the $2.99 introductory price, no problem. Just email me in the next three days at joe at connectioncounselor.com and tell me why executive presence is important to you and I'll send you a free copy. With your help, I know we can do it. You can find the book on amazon.com or in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joe Kwanjo coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joequanjo.com. And stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.